Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. This hour, you might not have realized it, but winters have been warming in Illinois. Since 1970, the average winter temperature is up nearly 5 degrees. What's the impact, especially on farmers? We'll hear about it. State Farm is the largest auto insurer in the country, but the way consumers shop could be about to change that. And we learn about the late great jazz musician Vic Spiderbeck. He grew up in the Quad Cities and died at a young age, but he remains influential, including in his hometown. A longtime Democratic Party insider in Illinois has left politics behind for a job running a marijuana farm. We'll introduce you to him, and we'll also find out more about efforts to restore an historic opera house in a small Illinois town. Those stories and more coming up on Statewide. This is Statewide. That's the music of Leon Bick Spiderbeck. If you're not familiar with him, well, you're not alone. But he was a prolific jazz pioneer who played the cornet and piano. He died in 1931 when he was only 28 years old. Bix grew up in the Quad Cities in Davenport, and his name remains prominent in the community. He's buried there, and an annual jazz festival is named for him. To learn some more about the influential musician, we spoke with Nathaniel Kraft, director of the Bix Spiderbeck Museum and Archive in Davenport. As a kid, uh, he had a gift to uh, play music by ear, and so he was largely self-taught. Uh, he learned piano at the age of three, uh, and so by the age of seven, he was able to play just about anything he heard. Uh, he'd hear it once, and then he could repeat it. Uh, he then, in high school, uh, got introduced to uh, Southern New Orleans jazz and uh, through records that his brother brought home. And from there, he bought a cornet and actually taught himself by listening to the records on repeat. Uh, he would even slow him down and listen to each part. And that's how he taught himself how to play the cornet. He was primarily prolific here in the Midwest uh, until he uh, joined this group called the Wolverines Orchestra. And in 1924, uh, they got to play uh, their first recordings at that time uh, at Richmond, Indiana in the Jeanette Records studio. Uh, and that actually got him a gig in New York City. And from there, that's kind of where his, his career kind of flourished. In the 21st century, you know, Bix has uh, three Grammy Awards uh, for In a Mist, Singing the Blues, and actually Georgia on My Mind, which was composed by Hoagie Carmichael, a close friend of his. He played with people like Carmichael, Frankie Trombauer, uh, Bing Crosby, uh, the Dorsey Brothers, uh, and quite a few other, you know, fairly well-known jazz musicians of the 20s and 30s. Uh, he was great friends with people like Louis Armstrong, uh, and, and hung out with a lot of those groups as well. He died of, of pneumonia at the age of 28 in his apartment. Uh, and so uh, it was a bit tragic, uh, kind of, you know, abrupt in, in a lot of ways. So here in the Quad Cities, you know, we, we like to honor him. And it, it seems that largely a lot of people who are musicians know his music. He's still taught in schools. I, I hear of, you know, jazz musicians nowadays, you know, their, their teachers are, are teaching them Bix's music when they get into college and things like that. Uh, and so that's kind of where he's mostly known is, you know, among the circle of people who uh, religiously listen to jazz or, you know, play instruments. Uh, and, and so his legacy and his influence isn't really known too well for, you know, the, the average music listener or the average person. 
do you think a lot of that is because he died at such an early age, his career was so short? I think that that has something to do with it. Um, cause he was playing with some of the best and, you know, they were, you know, well-known even to this day, you know, Louis Armstrong is a household name. Um, but Louis lived, you know, into his eighties, uh, Bix died at the age of 28. Uh, and so I think that is a huge part. And, and so this was, you know, 1931, it was kind of just before TV became a thing. Um, he was playing live on the radio, but, um, it, it seemed like shortly after his death, he was kind of forgotten a little. But he also, you know, saw international success when his records started being produced overseas. And so he does have an international following um, all over the world. We get people to their museum from China, Germany. I think we've had probably about 16 or 17 countries that we can represent from visitors. And so he, he is known and he's listened to uh, quite prolifically. And, and so we, we kind of do see a lot of you know locals here don't really know too much about him but his name is everywhere here in, in Davenport uh, and so it's kind of uh, an interesting thing that people don't know too much about him and I think it's a lot to do with his early death he's remembered by a, a generation that is slowly dying out and when we think of jazz we think of different places New Orleans comes to mind maybe even St. Louis but the Quad Cities not so much so uh, the Quad Cities is actually a, a long history with music. Um, back in Bix's time, you know, he kind of put their, their name on the map. But before then, when he was growing up, the Quad Cities, in particular Davenport, uh, was known kind of globally as like this wicked city. You know, they had 500 to 1,000 clubs and bars, you know, nightly, you know, in operation. And, and so there was a lot of music being played in the Quad Cities. Uh, and the Mississippi River helped. Uh, we had bands from New Orleans coming up quite regularly on riverboats, and they were playing on their way to Chicago or back down to St. Louis and, and vice versa. And so we were kind of a, a stop along the way, and, and we still are today. There's a lot of music in the Quad Cities. There's a lot of really well-known musicians. And so the Quad Cities isn't, you know, just known for Bix. And in his time, you know, he was learning and listening to a lot of the local bands who uh, took their cues from New Orleans jazz. So he was surrounded by it. Uh, and he, you know, war played with a lot of those bands. And while we kind of remember some of those musicians ourselves locally, you know, because they became business owners and their families still live here. Bix is kind of the one that a lot of people kind of associate Davenport with. But, you know, I think even living down here is kind of interesting because uh, almost any day of the week, there's probably, you know, five or six, you know, live music opportunities even during the weekdays uh, here in Davenport. We're talking with Nathaniel Kraft. He's director of the Bix Beiderbeck Museum and Archive based in Davenport. What was he like as a person? Do we know much else about him? Of course, like I said, he died nearly a century ago, so there are not a lot of contemporaries around, but what have you learned about him? The interesting thing about Bix is uh, a lot of people his personal life wasn't really too well known outside of what we have left. Um, we have anecdotes from the people that he hung out with. And a lot of them would tell us he was the perfect gentleman. Um, he didn't really talk about much outside of sports and music because those were the things he loved. But, uh, you know, I, th I believe, you know, even Louis Armstrong had put that like Bix was the kind of guy that uh, he couldn't say no to anyone. He was always helping people. And that was kind of part of his downfall was, you know, he was run ragged by uh, helping out people and being nice. And uh, we always have a lot of his friends and family. They always said he was 
he was nice. He was always helpful. He was very uh, well-spoken. Um, and it kind of what we can gather from a lot of it, um, it, it does seem like that's kind of how he was. Um, you know, some of our letters in our archives, you know, him talking to his parents and stuff, uh, he, he was always trying to please them and, and saying really, you know, all, telling about all the, the fun stuff he was doing and, and hoping that they, they were approving of it. And uh, his, his neighbors always had these great things to say. And, and so we, we luckily have interviews of people who knew him and, and that's kind of all they really remember him as is uh, this, this nice boy who played really great music and his friends were always, you know, very appreciative of, of how great he was to be around. You mentioned he died at the age of 28. I've read where they believe alcohol may have played a role in this. His health was deteriorating. But what else do you know about his uh, his untimely death? So with Bix's death, he died of lumbar pneumonia. Um, he had, within the last couple of years of life, he was in and out of treatment for uh, drinking. And from what we can find, that he had quit drinking about three to six months before he died. Um, he had met a, a girl that he wanted to marry. And, and so he, he had quit drinking for her. Um, but unfortunately, many years of, of drinking and being on the road uh, kind of ran him ragged. Uh, Bix was also not very healthy as a kid. Um, he almost died of scarlet fever in elementary school. Uh, and he always, you know, we even have letters of him talking about, you know, he had bronchitis yearly. Um, he was never totally in, in good health. Uh, and then also, you know, he was a touring musician. And when he wasn't touring, he was uh, doing recordings at recording studios, doing live performances on the radio, uh, showing up for sponsorships, things like that. And, and so he was constantly awake, constantly on the road. And uh, when it said that he was home, um, again, kind of going with his uh, can't say no to people uh, and gentlemanly type thing, uh, his fans and people knew, knew him would show up to his apartment at all hours of the night and he would invite him in and play music. So he didn't sleep much. Um, and, and I think what really happened was just, he had too many years of not doing much, taking care of himself. Uh, and really what ended up happening was he was just too weak to continue. And, you know, back in, you know, the early 1930s, you know, healthcare isn't what it, what it is now. It, it just was a little bit too little too late for him to, to turn things around. And unfortunately that's kind of what ended up happening to a lot of people in that time period. Talk about his musical style. I mean, we hear about a lot of jazz performers, but what set him apart so much? What have you been able to uh, find from that? Bix had an unorthodox style of playing. Uh, it was, from what people would say, um, as opposed to a lot of the, the trumpet and cornet players uh, who played in the higher register, they played very loudly, uh, kind of similar to Louis Armstrong. Uh, Bix, on the other hand, um, he was very classically influenced uh, with his family's upbringing, uh, and he stuck quite in the middle registers. And so people would say that when he played, he, he was kind of an early pioneer of, of improvised soloing. And so he would, when he get up to play, um, people would say that his music sounded like he was sitting alone with you in a room and you were the only two playing, you know, he's playing for you and just you. And so which um, is kind of different from a lot of other, you know, jazz musicians and, and bands uh, that we do kind of know more about. Um, he played 
in a way where he used both of his hands uh, when using his cornet fingering. And so I think at one point he tried to get someone to kind of teach him a little bit better how to play, and, and the guy couldn't teach him because uh, he wasn't holding the cornet correctly. Uh, and so he was able to find ways to kind of experiment. Um, his piano pieces themselves have been uh, compared to uh, being so far ahead of their time uh, there wasn't a piano composer who did anything similar to him until about the 1960s. It was this kind of very unique style where he was able to come up with small small bars and solos uh, out of almost nowhere, um, and he was always playing. Uh, and so that kind of, I think, what has struck to a lot of people, even today, uh, they, they find that there's this guy who played very melodically uh, in a time where uh, soloing wasn't really too big of a thing, and on top of that, uh, a lot of the other musicians, they were trying to hit those higher notes and he kind of stayed within a, a certain range himself. Do you still hear elements of his style in today's jazz? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, there are a lot of musicians even today that uh, will say that they take inspiration from the way Bix plays. Um, his style of of creating his solos and his style of playing was so progressive that um, a lot of musicians still kind of lean into that to, to kind of find new ways to play their own instruments. I mean, he has influenced, you know, rock musicians and blues musicians, and th these aren't people who aren't playing jazz, they're playing, you know, completely different uh, styles of music, but they still find that there's something to learn from Bix. Even today, you know, we have a few local musicians here uh, in, in the Chicago area who uh, take a lot of their inspiration from Bix. Um, I'm sure a lot of people in the Chicago area might know Andy Shum. And, you know, he's a, a musician that really adores Bix and he plays quite a few instruments, but uh, when he plays the cornet and trumpet, he, he tries to style himself kind of based off of Bix's playing. So aside from going to the museum in Davenport, let's say somebody's wanting to find out more about him, wanting to learn more about Bix, what would be a way to do that? What are some good starting points? So outside of just our museum, um, we are the, the largest museum and archives uh, that's dedicated to just him. Um, but there is resources on Bix in a lot of other areas. Um, so if you're not in the, the Quad Cities, you know, there, there are a few other muse museums. Um, there's one in uh, Richmond, Indiana, where he recorded. They have a few resources on him. Uh, our library, well, the Davenport Public Library is where our archives are at. And so if you're looking to do research on him or, or learn a bit more, you can always stop by the library. Um, here in Davenport, we also have his home that he grew up in with his parents. Uh, that still stands, and, and people like to come visit that. Uh, his grave site's here in Davenport, and that's always visited. Uh, there's a very good resource online. I believe it's uh, BixSpiderBeck.com. Uh, it's ran by a great Bix historian. His name's Albert Haim. Uh, and so he kind of helped quite a bit to get the museum running, and, and he's done uh, his due diligence for many decades to learn as much as he could about Bix. Um, there's a number of uh, biographies uh, written uh, about Bix. And so there's um, the Phil and Linda Evans book. Uh, that one is probably the most comprehensive book on Bix's life. And, and so if you can't make it to Davenport, uh, there's always the opportunity to, to maybe find a book or one of the other museums. Um, another thing I can even recommend is on our website, we have a 
uh, list of YouTube videos where we do a virtual tour of Bix, uh, our exhibit. And so you can even learn about Bix online uh, and, and without even coming to our museum that way. Uh, something that I like to to tell people a lot about um, on Bix is that uh, I think the the main thing to get off of him and and to remember him by is um, he was a young man who grew up in a, a small city in in Davenport, Iowa, uh, and he became one of the most I, I guess you say most well loved jazz musicians alongside some of the biggest ones. Um, and he's not even from you know New Orleans or New York or Chicago places like that. Uh, and so it's kind of this very inspiring story where I, I think I'd like people to take away that uh, if you have a dream or you have something you love doing, you can take inspiration from Bix's story and that if you really do work at it and if you follow those, uh, those things that you love, uh, you can do a lot of really good things. And it doesn't have to be music. It can be just about anything that you, you really do enjoy. And I, I think it's a very inspiring story, uh, even, even if Bix died very young. Um, he was doing what he loved until the end of his life. Nathaniel Kraft is director of the Big Spiderbeck Museum and Archive in Davenport. The Memorial Jazz Festival named for Bix happens every summer. Even though he died 82 years ago, at the young age of just 28, he remains an influential jazz pioneer. There's more to come on Statewide. Stay with us. Welcome back to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. In Illinois, the average winter temperature is about 5 degrees warmer than it was in 1970. Shayla Farzan reports how warmer winters are changing the way some farmers grow their crops. On a frigid winter morning, Liz Graznak cracks open the door of a greenhouse, letting out a rush of warm, earthy-smelling air. She carefully peels back a layer of cloth on the ground, revealing rows of tiny sprouts. That's the delphinium plants. These little dudes right there. <laughs> this is just one of four greenhouses that Graznak has at her organic farm near Columbia, Missouri. Inside, she's able to grow delicate, high-value crops, like flowers and spinach. Graznak says these greenhouses help protect plants from extreme swings in weather, something she's noticed is happening more frequently. We don't get a couple of inches of snow. We get 18 inches of snow all at once. And then in five days, it's 70 degrees again. Like, that's devastating to a vegetable farm. Data show extreme weather is just one of the many effects of climate change across the U.S. For farmers like Graznak, another major change is warmer winters. The four hottest Januaries on record have all occurred since 2016. Amy Butler is a climate scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. She says winter is warming faster than any other season, based on data going back to the late 1800s. But, she says, cold weather will still happen. Less cold does not mean never cold. It just means that really cold weather will happen less often and be less severe or persistent in the future. These warmer winters have ripple effects in agriculture, says Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub in Ames, Iowa. One of the effects is on soils. Toddy says Midwestern soil is fertile because historically it freezes every year, which stops bacteria and other organisms from breaking it down. 
as the winters warm, we have a longer period of time where that is unfrozen or we have more of the area that it never freezes. So the soils can kind of break down. So we start losing more of that good uh, nutrient value in those soils. When soils don't freeze, it can also help crop pests survive the winter and allow them to expand into new regions. But when it comes to agriculture in the Midwest, one of the most noticeable results of climate change right now is longer growing seasons. Richard Oswald's family has been farming in northwest Missouri on the Nebraska border since the 1840s. When I was a kid, my dad had a firm rule, you don't plant corn before the 12th of May. And the reason for that is the right time to plant corn is when oak leaves are the size of squirrel's ears. That's when the season starts. Now, Oswald says, he and other farmers plant corn a month earlier, in mid-April. That's partly because they're planting hardier varieties now. But he says the weather also warms up a lot sooner than it used to. These longer growing seasons can result in higher yields. Still, Oswald says he worries climate change will make farming much harder in the future. He's been thinking about it more and more since 2019, when catastrophic flooding swamped his farm and childhood home. From his pickup truck, he points to where the water stood for months. From the Nebraska bluffs behind us to the Missouri bluffs in front of us, it was all water. Oswald lost about 26,000 bushels of corn in that flood, some of which is still rotting on the ground at his farm. He says farmers rely on science and data every day to grow their crops, and the data show climate change is happening. But in his community, not many people will discuss it. They don't want to use the word climate change. Yeah, it's been hot, but I don't want to call it climate change. It's been wet, but I wouldn't say it's climate change. Having these frank discussions is hard, he says, but it will help them better prepare for what's coming. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Shayla Farzan. The Rockford community has protested school violence since news of a student body slammed by school police surfaced in October. Some, however, are disappointed with how the board has reacted to the protests since then by barring people from meetings and even violence from a board member. Peter Medlin has more. In October, the family of a Rockford Public School student filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against the school board, a school resource officer, and several administrators from Auburn High School. The suit says that in the fall of 2021, Paris Moore, who was a freshman at the time and stood less than five feet tall, was body slammed by a school resource officer. Security footage shows Officer Bradley Lauer slamming Moore's head on the concrete floor, knocking him unconscious and fracturing his skull. The 14-year-old's offense? skipping part of his second period class and walking down the hall. The lawsuit also alleges a cover-up by the school district. The news did not sit well with Rockford residents. And in the weeks and months following the lawsuit, community members packed school board meetings to protest and give public comments. Nicholas Stangy came to shoot video for the Rockford Anti-Police Violence Group May 30th Alliance. He stood in the back of the meeting and didn't make a comment. And afterwards, the local high school history teacher stood out in the snow capturing footage of the outside of the building. That's when a board member, Michael Connor, walked out, came right up to him, and swung. Dude, you can't do that. His punch hit Stangy's camera, which was recording the whole incident. Connor repeats, You have no business. What the hell was that? 
at Stangy. And you're trying to intimidate. Connor resigned the next day. Stangy says he got a sympathetic email from one board member, and at the next meeting, that same member talked about how he'd wish that he had intervened. But Stangy says he still hasn't heard any remorse from the school board about what happened to Paris Moore in the first place. To my knowledge, they haven't even expressed sympathy for the injuries he sustained. I understand it's illegal right now and you got to go through that, but there's no reason why you can't say, you know, we feel terrible about what happened. He says it's also deeply frustrating that protesting school violence has led to more violence from the school district. Stangy also mentions how several community members have been forcibly removed for speaking out at board meetings. The violence that I've seen take place has not occurred by any of the May 30th members, by any of the community. It's been strictly by the police who bent that girl's arm as she was being escorted out and put in an elevator with four other police for simply speaking out at a meeting. Ari Perez was pulled out of a November meeting by security for talking outside of the public comment section. The next time Perez came to a board meeting, two Rockford police officers along with security guards were waiting for him. They stopped him and told him he was banned from attending RPS school board meetings. Perez tried to ask for paperwork that explained why he was banned or for how long, but he says security told him that he already had that paperwork and that he needed to leave the property or they'd arrest him. Perez says he hadn't been handed anything. By mid-December, Perez finally received a letter in the mail from the board. It said that he had been banned for the rest of the school year because he, quote, attempted to disrupt and interrupt the regular business of the school board. Perez says he's not the only community member to receive a ban. Ricky Naylor is a community member who attends nearly every school board meeting, often speaking about racial inequity in the district. We get called the police on for making comments. Why didn't they call the police on the police when he slammed that kid? That was child abuse. Just this past month, the attorneys for Paris Moore's family added a new complaint to the lawsuit, and it alleges that the school board attempted to pressure his family not to pursue legal action as part of a cover-up. That alleged cover-up and the board's silence about Paris Moore is why some members of the Rockford community aren't too bothered by people speaking up during meetings, even if it's outside of the public comment period. They think maybe that's what it'll take to hold the board accountable. The federal civil rights lawsuit against the school board, school resource officer, and Auburn High School administrators is still pending. I'm Peter Medlin. State Farm's perch as the nation's top auto insurer is in jeopardy, according to a leading insurance analyst. Last summer, Fitch ratings projected Geico and Progressive would overtake State Farm in premium volume this year. Now the ratings service says the past year was so volatile for all insurers, the timeline might be delayed, as Fitch's head of property and casualty insurance, Jim Auden, explained in this interview with Eric Stock back in December. 2020 was a record profit year for auto insurers that with uh, the pandemic, people driving a lot less, claims frequency down considerably. It was, it was a very good year for auto insurers from a claims perspective. Now, in, in 2021, the thought was that things would get back to normal, folks driving more, frequency goes up. And that, that happened maybe at a slower pace than thought, but results deteriorated uh, pretty soundly for auto insurers in 2021 with uh, really claim severity issues. So again, pandemic related with the economy, supply chain shortages, so auto parts and components weren't available cost of materials and contract labor higher that and higher litigation costs from social inflation too that that led to um, underwriting losses for insurers 
And now in 2022, there was a thought it could stabilize, but uh, in reality, things have gotten worse in 2022, where a number of companies have, have substantial underwriting losses. So State Farm State did Farm. perhaps less poorly than those others um, have? No, I, w- I wouldn't say that. So they, they had an underwriting gain in auto in 2020. Things deteriorated to uh, in 2021, where State Farm and auto had a 109 combined ratio. And that means really for every $100 in premium earned, they uh, incurred $109 of insured losses and expenses. So, so a loss from that perspective. And now this year, actually, their, their losses are even higher. If you, if you look at, go back to the market share question, this year, State Farm has grown faster than the auto market through, through nine months data that we see by about 10%, it looks like. This is a direct premium before any reinsurance that they purchase, but their premiums are up by 10%. So they've really uh, grown faster than Geico and Progressive this year thus far. With State Farm, you cannot tell if it's uh, growth in policy count or prices. I presume it's mostly prices that have gone up in response to recent experience. What do you account for the the trend change where Geico and Progressive had been moving in on their territory? Well, you know they are they are big companies and very very uh, good at risk selection and you know sophisticated pricing models effective distribution systems. So, you know, they, they had a history of very uh, strong, profitable growth in the business and, um, you know, wanted to continue pursuing that. And, and actually Progressive does stand out this year as uh, more profitable than their other uh, large carriers. So, so I think, you know, there may be a pause in growth uh, overall, but they, they may be positioned uh, for uh, faster growth, growth in the future compared to others. Since you had projected that State Farm could be passed up in 2023 based on this year's numbers, it seemed mm-hmm. to slow that. Where do you think that comes in the future, or does that ever happen? Does State Farm continue mm-hmm. to remain number one? Maybe it's bragging rights mostly, but um, you know whether you're the biggest or you know we're credit analysts at Fitch, and um, to us it's more you know size and scale are helpful, but do you have capital to support your business? And, you know, can you write business and earn, earn a decent profit on it? So, so that's less important, I think. State Farm, you know, they're the biggest insurer in the U.S. Um, premium volume today. Their, their lead has narrowed a bit in auto. Uh, in homeowners, they are by far the largest writer in the U.S. with 21% market share to all states, 9%. In auto, I think in, inevitably, Geico and Progressive will pass them up. Uh, probably not in 23 based on uh, this recent shift in trend, but uh, you know those, those companies uh, continue to succeed in their chosen business and uh, will do well. As we review uh, State Farm's uh, projections for 2023, does Geico and Progressive's ongoing encroachment, so to speak, sort of make the case against having 
local agents in all of these offices across the country, which has always been State Farm's bread mm-hmm. and butter. It's what they promote. It's all a part of their marketing. Is that not helping them that much if they're losing this share and they're bearing the additional costs of doing that? Uh, I think distribution is part of it and that over, over time, more and more people get uh, comfortable with you know, direct purchase or online purchases of many goods, and you know, including financial products like insurance that I think you know, definitely a, a great asset that State Farm has with their distribution system. And I can see the, the share of local agents uh, continuing to decline, but you know, not, not entirely going away. There's, there's definitely uh, people like the local service and you know, that direct interaction with uh, their agent too. So there's many different models in insurance. And, you know, that's one that's been there a long time. I can see the share dropping over time. We did see that State Farm took a big hit in the third quarter, a net underwriting loss of over $4.5 billion in, in auto, their worst mm-hmm. quarter by a wide margin in over two decades, according to S&P Global. Why do you think they took such a big hit then? So... Uh, definitely in auto, it is the, you know, the return of frequency. And, and part of the, the frequency issue is that uh, post-pandemic driving behavior maybe got riskier. So when you have accidents, they may be at higher speed. Um, but then also uh, claim severity issues. So auto parts, components, more expensive a more frequent amount of litigated claims in auto insurance, and that tends to drive up claim settlements costs too. Uh, used car prices very high in the last uh, year and a half, and you know when uh, cars are totaled, that uh, leads to higher insurance claims. So, so there's a few factors there on the severity side that have worked against them, and companies were a bit behind in recognizing that and raising prices. For folks who live in Bloomington Normal and uh, many of whom are employed by State Farm and they've been they've been one of the largest employers that uh, this area has seen for the last century, should they be concerned about anything that's going on here uh, in terms of where insurance is trending if Geico and mm-hmm. Progressive continue to, to move up? State Farm, well, I don't see them moving from the area. And I see them being a large insurer. Um, you know, definitely uh, the insurance industry cost components have been affected by technology over time. And, you know, so how companies staff and, you know, the type of uh, staffing they need. But I, I would think State Farm, very large uh, number of employees, and they will continue to in the future. That's Jim Auden of Fitch Ratings with Eric Stock. State Farm says in a statement the insurer is on pace for another record year of auto growth, and it's proud to insure more personal autos than anyone else. There's more to come on Statewide. Stay right here. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Still on the way, a restoration project in a small Illinois town. 
But next, an Illinois Democratic insider has left the state and launched his second act. Mike Noonan was a top campaign operative for state Democratic leader Michael Madigan. But Noonan quit politics after Madigan's downfall in a corruption scandal. Dan Mihalopoulos visited Noonan recently at his new business, a marijuana farm in Michigan. Southland Farms in Niles, Michigan is a stoner's version of a winery or a craft brewery. Everything they sell here is grown on site from seed. And Mike Noonan refers to his newly opened organic cannabis store as a bud teak. Get it? You can walk into a, a retail store in the cannabis space and immediately see if the, which kind of green the owner likes more. Is it the green they put in the bank or is it the green they put in the bong? Near the cash register at Southland Farms, Noonan proudly displays his recently obtained certificate as a Gangier. In, uh, in uh, Humboldt County in July when I passed my three exams to become a certified Gangier. That's what they call someone who's trained to advise cannabis customers on their choices. Think of a Gangier like a sommelier, only for weed instead of wine. The new job is a lot different than what Noonan did for the last 25 years on our side of Lake Michigan. He was a top campaign operative for Michael Madigan, the longtime Illinois House Speaker and Democratic Party boss. Noonan even ran the first campaign for Illinois Attorney General for the boss's daughter, Lisa Madigan. Life has really transitioned and uh, all for the better. But Noonan's dramatic career change came only after the mighty Madigan machine burnt out. The Speaker resigned last year. Madigan has been indicted now, though he's fighting the charges. As for Noonan, he has not been implicated in the federal corruption cases, but the 54-year-old says it was clearly time for a change. Let's be honest, Dan. Maybe I wasn't the best at identifying the people who shouldn't be in politics because obviously I still like and care for plenty of folks who, who are now seen as scoundrels, right? Noonan says he's used cannabis for decades, and he says Madigan knew it. In 1996, a uh, competitor in the political landscape went and reported me for using cannabis to the speaker's operation. Back then, marijuana was illegal, and Noonan says he expected to get fired by Madigan, but was pardoned. I had been a hardworking guy, and I think more importantly, I had been successful for them. And so the uh, reprimand that I got was from my boss at the time was, you've been reported. It doesn't seem to be affecting your work at all. See you tomorrow. Noonan also thinks he was allowed to keep his job because Madigan understood there's more than one side to everybody. It's a lesson Noonan says he's also applied to the current scandal. People who know me might say, well, Mike, you were friends with people who've been indicted, right? It's important to remember that nobody is just one thing. People can be good and they can be bad. The trial of four defendants in the Springfield scandal is scheduled to begin in March in federal court in Chicago. Noonan says he'll be 100 miles from there at his new business in Michigan, helping tend to dozens of deeply pungent, leafy plants growing under the lights in five climate-controlled rooms. Dan Mihalopoulos, WBEZ News.
The number of states that legalized cannabis more than doubled in the last five years. A study finds in that time more children are consuming edible marijuana. Rita Chatterjee has that story. Back in 2019, Dr. Merritt Tweed, an emergency medicine doctor, was starting a fellowship at the Illinois Poison Control Center. The big buzz at that time was that cannabis was going to be legalized for recreational adult use January 1st, 2020. Now that Illinois was changing its law, she looked at studies from other states that had already legalized the drug. Some had found unintentional health impacts on kids. One study in Colorado documented a rise in the number of children accidentally consuming edible products. So Tweet wanted to know if this would also happen nationally as more states legalized the drug. And she was most concerned about kids five years and younger. This age group accounts for about 40% of all calls to poison centers nationally. And it's the age when children start to explore their surroundings. They can get into things and you can't really rationalize with them. Hey, you shouldn't get into this. This might be dangerous to you. They think it looks like candy and they want to eat it. So Tweet and her colleagues looked at information from the National Poison Data System. They found that back in 2017, there were just over 200 reported cases of accidental consumption of edibles by children in this age group. But in 2021, the number had shot up to more than 3,000. An increase of 1,375%. The vast majority of the kids had found the drug in their own home. While most kids suffered mild impacts, about one in five was hospitalized. Dr. Andrew Monty is an emergency medicine doctor at University of Colorado Hospital who wasn't involved in the new study. He says he and his colleagues see these cases in their emergency department. We do have these children come in several times per month. He urges that if parents suspect their child ate an edible, they should take the child to a doctor right away. There are some patients that actually have airway obstruction and need to be in the ICU or put on a ventilator. The new study, published in Pediatrics, found that a significant minority of kids were admitted to an ICU. Dr. Nora Volkov directs the National Institute on Drug Abuse. So it's not just the issue that there are more poisons of children consuming cannabis, but that those consumptions appear to be more serious. She says the findings raise the issue of how these edibles are packaged and marketed. If you've ever been curious, go to a dispensary or a store where they sell cannabis products, which, of course, me being a curious person, I've done. And the edibles are extremely appealing in terms of the packaging, the colors. So, she says, parents and caregivers should take note of the new study's findings. If they are going to be consuming edibles, it is their responsibility to ensure that those edibles are not at the reach of their children. Volkov suggests storing them in childproof containers or just putting them away in places where kids are less likely to find them. Read the strategy and PR News. Well, maybe you've procrastinated a bit and still not taken down your Christmas tree. As Reginald Hardwick explains, those trees could be a tasty snack for some farm animals. On a gray, overcast day, 40 goats and a few sheep await a green, tasty snack. Mitch Gardner lays a Christmas tree on its side at his farm in White Heath. They'll come in herds, you know, just come running from across the pasture and, and surround it, and then they'll all, you know, pick it, pick on each other over it. And Gardner runs Goats on the Go, Champaign-Urbana. During the summer, he rents the herd out to chomp down on pine, cedar, and honeysuckle. But during the winter, the goats gorge on the pine needles from fresh-cut trees. This is a good way for them to get some live vegetation. 
This is the first year Gardner has accepted trees from strangers. Tinsel, lights, and metal hooks that hold ornaments must be removed from donated trees. For nutritional reasons, the goats only consume one a day. And when they're finished? Like probably the saddest Charlie Brown tree you've seen. <laughs> it's uh, There's really nothing left of them. Donating trees to goat farms is gaining traction from Nevada to New England. I'm Reginald Hardwick reporting. Fewer than 100 people live in the tiny Fulton County village of Ellisville, but the little community brags of a big asset, a historic opera house. Restoring the building to its former glory requires a lot of work and money, and that's where Illinois Humanities comes in. The nonprofit organization is reinvesting in cultural assets in rural areas of the state via a new grant program. Tim Shelley speaks with the historic Ellisville Restoration Organization president, Paula Helley, and the Illinois Humanities Director of Statewide Programs, Feiruz Abugalaze, to learn more. The Opera House would have been built in 1891, and that would have been probably the heyday of Ellisville. Um, when the small gauge railroad was still present in this area, there was, there was a lot of industry, uh, small mines and what have you. And, and then of course, when the small gauge went bust, uh, so did Ellisville. And uh, it's kind of, I remember one time back 20 years ago, I tried to get a home improvement loan and it got turned down and, and it was like a small amount. And I pretty much had the place paid for. And the guy was like, I don't understand why this didn't go through. Do you live in the place that time forgot? I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> That's probably part of it. So the building itself was in absolute disrepair in the 1980s. And there was questions as to whether it just needed to be torn down. Um, and then this group hero, Historic Ellisville Restoration Organization, was formed, and they got it structurally back where it needed to be, and uh, it has just been improved through the years ever since. So tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, what, what work you're doing on it currently. I mean, it's at a point where you're able to, to do things in the building, obviously, right? Oh, certainly, yes. It's just been fun to watch how the community has more and more gotten involved in what's happening aesthetically. They come to watch the shows and they're like, look at that. I did that. You know, look at that. And and so that's so exciting. We are to the point now uh, we've gotten the downstairs is pretty much divided into two rooms. And so we are now wanting to start working on the East Room and getting it looking nice. We still have vendors in there when we do things, but it's it definitely needs to be brought up to par with the rest of the building. And one of the things that will help with that effort is the, the grant you've received from Illinois Humanities. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the grant itself. This is a relatively new program, correct, for, for rural communities? Yes, yes. It's, 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 a, it's a new initiative that we launched this year. Tell me a little bit about why you've launched it and what what the goals of it is. Well, I think it, it was it was um, clear to to a lot of the staff and a lot of people that we work with at Illinois Humanities that um, there needs to be more. We need to do more um, in terms of of covering our state, and then also in terms of working with rural and small town communities in Illinois. And um, we have a we have a long history of working in the throughout the state, uh, throughout some of our other programs like uh, the museum on Main Street, 
Rhodes Scholars Program and Country and the City. Um, and even through grants, we've been trying to do our best to, to uh, give more grants to rural and small towns. But this is, it's like, this is a specific program that is only focused on rural and small uh, communities. And it was wonderful that we got the money through a anonymous donor who saw that this is an important opportunity and that there's a need in that area. And through that, we were able to start this multi-year uh, program um, that is focused um, on grants, but also on community building, on connecting um, communities together, on uh, co-creating programs and, um, and offering capacity building and skill sharing opportunities. And Paula, what does receiving this grant uh, allow you to do, allow the HERO organization to do? This is going to allow us to make improvements to the building so that it can become more accessible and more usable um, for more events. We know that the only way this building can be viable is if it is in use a lot. And we have to have lots of things going on in it, but you have to have certain things. You have to have heat, you have to have plumbing, you have, you know, uh, it has to be safe. And so um, th this grant, we've been working really hard the last three years at the Opera House trying to get funds to put in an elevator. And I am so proud to say that we just finished that project as far as raising the funds, now we've just got to wait on the construction company, which is huge because now people that have not been able to go to the second floor where the auditorium is can have access. But this this fund, the, the funds that will come from the Humanities Council will be used to help improve the, the downstairs where we're hoping to start seeing um, an opportunity for local artisans to have mercantile in there on a permanent basis. So uh, we're just super excited because every ounce of money that we've been earning the last three years has been set aside towards this um, lift project is what it's called. So um, anyway, this just came along at a perfect time um, while the momentum's going at the Opera House. The kids that are involved in these plays, I mean, we're getting ready to have our uh, annual Christmas ball, which was the first event ever held in the Opera House in 1891. And when you watch kids excited about coming to dressing up to a dance with their parents and grandparents, you know, it, it is a magical thing to that generations and community come together in such a way. So um, just, just to know that we're not alone in our little corner, that there is an organization out there willing to help us along a side of us is huge. That's Paula Helley and Faye Ruz Abugalase speaking to Tim Shelley about restoration efforts at the historic Ellisville Opera House in Fulton County. And we're out of time here on Statewide this week, but we'll be back next time with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can always find all of our episodes at our website, nprillinois.org. Just look for Statewide and our weekly podcast available through the NPR One app. I'm Sean Crawford, and Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations. Bye.